Uranium is a dangerous mineral. Whether it's during mining, transportation, its use in nuclear power stations or in nuclear weapons, there's the constant risk of radioactive contamination. A nuclear waste has to be stored, a huge challenge given that it can remain dangerous for thousands of years. For a couple of decades or more, successive governments have tried to find places to dump radioactive waste in Australia. Supposedly, the sites that get proposed are safe because they are remote, but all land in Australia is Aboriginal land and any dump would be a threat to country. The latest proposal is to ship, store and bury radioactive waste near Kimber on the Eyre Peninsula in South Australia. It's a proposal that's being fought by Bangala traditional owners and supporters. There'll be a rally against the nuclear dump in Port Augusta on Saturday this week, the 15th of October, and the campaign will, of course, continue. To fill us in on all this, I'm joined today by Dave Sweeney. Dave is a long-time environmental activist and Australian Conservation Foundation's nuclear campaigner. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Dave. Hello, David. Look, first up, perhaps you could remind us how dangerous is uranium and the wastes created in its processing and use? It's a dangerous mineral, a unique mineral. It has unique properties and risks. And it's a, a mineral that is the basic building block. It's the basic fuel for both nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And in its natural state, it is reasonably benign. That's largely because it's underground and contained. Once it's broken up, pulverised, chemically treated, mechanically crushed, is taken effectively out of its geological cocoon and it's made bioavailable, so it can move in wind and water, David. And as it's increasingly concentrated, processed and turned into nuclear fuel, at every stage along that nuclear chain, it becomes more and more toxic, more and more hazardous and more and more problematic and difficult to manage. So uranium in its natural state, say underground at Kakadu, gives off a, a low level radiation and you don't want to stay around it for a long time, but it's reasonably inert, reasonably benign, broken up in a tailings dam and broken up and at a mining site. It's more and more problematic, concentrated for use in a nuclear reactor, even more so. And then at the end of the, the nuclear reactor period, what you're left with is a waste that is carcinogenic and mutagenic. So it causes cancer, changes genetic structure and lasts for up to 100,000 years. So it's a very significant and escalating contaminating cycle. And it's a, um, it's a mineral that is far better off in the ground. And Australia has plenty of uranium. We've got about 35% of the world's uranium, the largest single national resource in the world, um, the biggest concentration of that mineral. And so from the perspective of the Australian environment and anti-nuclear or nuclear-free movements, we believe that the biggest combina uh, contribution that we can make to enhancing safety, reducing risk and 
promoting and facilitating the needed transition to renewable energy future is to keep Australia's uranium where it's safest, which is in the ground. And one of the great credits of sustained community and civil society and Aboriginal activism over decades has been to keep that uranium in the ground in Australia. There's only two operating mines in this country and we're a country, as you know, that has a rip and ship culture, that has a very resource and mineral based uh, economic system. And to be able to keep that uranium in the ground because it has always been contested at every site it's been discussed or dug, it's been contested. And that contest has been a major constraint on the industry. And that constraint has been a major plus for the world. We've dodged a radioactive bullet. Now what we need to do is increase our efforts, keep that stuff in the ground, clean up where it's been dug and move Australia away from being a facilitator of dirty, risky energy into a promoter and a user at home and abroad of sustainable and renewable energy sources. Absolutely. Now, the, the focus for the National Waste Dump has now moved to Kimber in South Australia. What's wrong with that proposal? There's so much wrong with that proposal that we could talk for a considerable period of time. As you referenced, there has been a long-running fight in Australia over how we manage our radioactive waste. Because we don't have commercial nuclear power stations, Australia's radioactive waste inventory or holdings is smaller than many countries, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that it's an insignificant risk. We have a real challenge to manage our radioactive waste sensibly, maturely, and in the best possible way. And what's happened over decades by both major parties in Australia, the Conservatives and the Labor Party, both have generally adopted an approach that the best way to manage radioactive waste is to move it to a regional or remote area, bury the low-level material, keep the intermediate and higher-level materials above ground till we work out a lasting solution, which no one has. So it's a very stopgap sort of measure. It's a measure that's been based on an assumption, really, that some areas of country and some communities are more vulnerable or perhaps less important politically or less have less agency than others. Some people have described it as a bit of a, an, an assumption that's a, like a radioactive terra nullius, that there's some land that's rubbish and there's some land that's important. We uh, reject that, like environment organisations like the Australian Conservation Foundation, a lot of civil society organisations and obviously the Aboriginal people who own and have deep cultural connections to the country that is being currently targeted, reject that it's... it's uh, rubbish country or of less value and what we are saying is that that you need to have an approach that's based on the best possible science the best possible technical approach and consent there needs to be social license so you ask the question what's wrong with kimber there's a couple of things one is the question of consent because that consent has never been sought from the bungla traditional owners and it would never be given. They are unequivocally opposed to radioactive waste on their country. And the process used by the former federal government, the coalition government, to advance this plan at Kimber, which is about 90 minutes drive west of uh, Port Augusta, the top of the Air Peninsula. 
It's a broad acre cereal and cropping country, uh, like a lot of uh, wheat, particularly a lot of barley grown around Kimber. So silos, broad acre, um, and, you know, productive agricultural land. And what has been done in order to, by the Commonwealth, in order to get a sense of community support is they held a community ballot, David, but they actively and consciously restricted and excluded bungalow traditional owners from being involved in that ballot. So they changed the rules or rather set them up in such a way that the only people that could have a say on whether or not this was a good idea were ratepayers in the Kimber Council District. So people who lived in the area, people who had cultural ties with the area, people who might work in the area, people in the adjoining regions, etc., etc. If you didn't pay rates, if you weren't on the council register, you didn't have a say. And so the bungalow were explicitly excluded. They had their own poll and that was unanimously opposed to the plan. And so it's been a highly curated, you know, inverted commas consultation process that has been designed to deliver the uh, uh, the appearance of community consent. And that consent's not there. We've got a very divided community in the Kimber region itself and a very and increasingly concerned community across the Air Peninsula and wider South Australia. So consent is missing. The other thing that's key in radioactive waste management is a responsible and transparent approach. Transparency is missing in the sense of there are very significant details about this proposal that we don't know. Probably the most obvious of those is that the plan is to move low-level waste and buried or inter it near Kimber and then to put intermediate-level waste next door to the low-level burial internment site in a shed and keep it in a shed till a, a future government unspecified in time, unspecified in process, no funding or forward estimates made, in the next 100 years will come along and take it away for deep geological burial somewhere else. So it's actually literally kicking the can down the road. And what we're saying is that 95% of that intermediate level waste, which has to be isolated from people and the environment for 10,000 years, 95% of it is currently held where it was created at the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, ANSTO, our national nuclear agency, at their facility at Lucas Heights in southern Sydney. They run a small nuclear reactor there, produce medical and industrial isotopes and produce Australia's radioactive waste, the vast bulk of it. Now, it's already there. ANSTO is Australia's centre for nuclear expertise, as they tell us every day. Uh, it is home to 12 or 1,300 workers. It is home to a permanent 24-7 federal policing capacity and high security. It's a highly secured site. It's also home to Australia's most comprehensive radioactive waste management monitoring and response capacity. And in, uh, uh, importantly, the stuff is already there, so you don't have to move it 1,800, 2,000 kilometres on roads through communities. So there is the capacity to keep it at Ansto, at least for a number of decades. There is a current new build, David, at Ansto of a $60 million facility, already funded, $60 million already under construction, to host and hold this material. And the nuclear regulator has said it can be securely kept there 
in accordance and consistent with principles of international best practice for industry and securely kept there for decades to come. Now, what environment organisations are calling on the still reasonably new Labor government to do is to revisit this whole issue, to look at the fact that Aboriginal people have said no but haven't been listened to, to accept the fact that most people in South Australia haven't had a say and to accept also that this is not a lasting solution to a long-term problem. It's a short-term politically expedient fix that isn't even really a fix. It's relocating material from above-ground interim storage in a place where there are high institutional assets at Ansto to a place where there are far less institutional assets being shed in a paddock in regional South Australia. So we're saying it's not responsible, it's not acceptable, it's not consistent with international best practice, it's not consistent with our obligations under international agreements like the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And we actually don't need to do it. We've got a prudent alternative. Now, none of the alternatives are none, nothing about radioactive waste is clean, uncomplicated, good. But the most sensible alternative, or if you like to put it, the best place for our worst waste in Australia is to be at Ansto. And then we need to have, David, what we've never had, despite all the fights and all the political posturing, we've never had an independent, open assessment of the full range of management options. How do we best store this stuff and manage this stuff into the future? You mentioned, of course, that the bungalow traditional owners are saying no to the Kimber proposal. And it strikes me that Putin isn't the only one who can set up dodgy referendums by the sound of it, that, uh, yeah, Australia can play that game too. I see that they've recently had a victory blocking drilling at Lake Torrens. Lake Torrens is, I looked at the map, north of Port Augusta. Kimber is southwest of Port Augusta. They're somewhere away from each other. How is the Lake Torrens drilling connected to the Kimber proposal? Or are they not connected at all? No, they're not connected directly, but there's a relevant dimension. They're very different proposals. One was a mining company to dig uh, a, a very significant lake. It's, a, it's a, a, a lake that has a real cultural importance, and it's also border country. There's three or four Aboriginal nations that share cultural responsibility for Lake Torrance, uh, including Bungala. Bungala uh, took a legal action which was successful. They took a judicial review challenging an approval given to Argonaut Resources, the mining company in this case, and that was successful. And that's where there is some sort of parallel. There's no direct linkage, but there is a parallel because they also now have lodged and are engaged in a judicial review challenge to the minister's approval for the Kimber plan to the former national or LMP minister, Keith Pitt, he was the former government's, the Morrison government's resource minister, and he signed off on the Kimber plan. And the Bungalow are in the federal court now. They're going backwards and forwards with exchange of documents and the discovery process and that. The case proper, I understand, is, is set for March 2023. And they're arguing that the minister made an error and didn't consider the full range of issues and considerations when he signed off on the Kimber plan. And they've been buoyed, David, as you can imagine. They've, they've fought a, a judicial review case in the court and won it over a mining issue. And now they're hoping that that 
will be a little bit of precedent and a little bit of good luck that will spill over into their challenge to the waste dump proposal. I'd have to say, though, in relation to that, it's, it's actually not sufficient, and your listeners would understand this very much. It's not sufficient in a process that's been highly curated to deliver a dodgy result that your point, your point of recourse is for an Aboriginal organisation to raise their own money to go to you know, the White Court to argue on very, very technical and specific pieces of administrative law that the ministers exceeded their authority. What should be the case is it should be, is this a good plan? And so it should be about merits, not about, you know, how many angels on the head of a pin with points of law. Is this a good plan is one question. And equally and vitally, the other question is, do people accept it? Do people who live in that area or who have responsibilities for that area accept it? And the answer in relation to the Kimber proposal, David, the answer to both those questions is no. So that's where it should stop. So we're very, you know, we're, we're pleased and supportive of Bungalow taking legal action. But it's, um, you know, that sort of pasting over what is a pretty fundamental crack in the system. Look, we'll, we'll come back to the campaigning in a moment, but I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about the treatment of radioactive waste because the best thing is to keep uranium in the ground and that would break the nuclear cycle there wouldn't be waste if there's no mining if there's no use of uranium but whether we like it or not there is radioactive waste whether it's from lucas heights and medical waste and and so on and so forth i know you've made a clear case for why in the short to medium term uh, that waste should remain at ansto but medium to long term, is there a safe way of handling this waste or a relatively safe way of handling this waste as a long term problem? I know the environmental movement, Aboriginal people, unions, we didn't create this problem. But at some level, hopefully in the future, we may be in a position of power to deal with the problem. So what would the answer be? That's a great question, and it's really well framed because there's an ecological principle that the best way to manage a problem is reduction at source. Like rather than having a filter on the pipe, you stop the rubbish going down the pipe. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're absolutely right when you say the first thing to do is to minimise waste production or end the production of the waste. And you're equally right when you say, but there is stuff here, there's legacy waste and there will be continuing waste, and we have a responsibility to manage it as effectively and as safely as possible. How do we do that is a really quite vexed and contentious question. It's radioactive waste management globally is a really difficult, unresolved and growing environmental management problem. No one has the silver bullet or an assured answer. And if anyone says they do, look at them with great scepticism because there'll be a hidden agenda there it's a difficult problem it's not unsolvable but it is effectively a problem of stewardship one because the stuff doesn't go away there's no there's the only thing that reduces radioactive waste is time there's no technical treatment there's no sort of alchemy that makes it not a problem so it's it's time that reduces the heat of radioactive waste and the danger So it's basically a case of how can you best isolate this material and how can you best ensure that isolation remains intact, integral, 
not compromised, not leaking. And there's big discussions, big scientific discussions about whether it is better to deep bury this deep into the earth. And that is generally the industry seen as the industry sort of gold standard, if you like. Go put it, you know, three, four, five hundred metres down, ideally in granite. Um, that's what they're doing in Finland. They tried to do that in the US and failed miserably. But the general industry principle is deep geological burial. There's many others in the industry and, and in civil society and academia who question that and say that the best thing is a hardened above ground storage that's sort of imperm like that's that gives you the ability to monitor it, monitor and repackage if things get corrupted or corroded. So there's all sorts of arguments about should you put it deep in the earth, should you keep it above the earth in hardened sort of bomb proof facilities that are regularly monitored. Should you have a central facility or multiple facilities to different grades of waste? Like there's all sorts of arguments. And ACF doesn't have a, a strict view. We don't have like a one paragraph, this is what we need to do in relation to the final result. What we do have is a number of guiding principles. They're about responsibility, best available technology, not, not um, what we can afford, but what actually is the best that we actually have. They're predominantly also about citing guidance, consent, Indigenous support, social licence. So we have like half a dozen foundation principles that would, we say, inform and guide a responsible approach. And then when it comes to what does that actually mean and how does that actually look, what we're, that's where we come back to the fact that in Australia we've actually never had that discussion. We've never had it. We've had fights at multiple sites over decades about... Uh, flawed plans, but we've never had a sort of measured discussion and examination of the full range of options. And that's what we need to do. That's what we desperately need to do. So ACF wants to stop the Kimber plan because we think it's deeply deficient in a whole range of ways. And then we want to keep the intermediate level waste, Australia's worst waste at Anstow, where it can be kept safely for decades to come, and use that time not to do nothing but to do what we've never done before, which is bring people out of the trenches, around the table, academics, industry, waste producers, waste managers, environment groups, Indigenous representatives, trade unions, international experts, bring people to the table, smash heads together, talk, look at reports and come up with the least worst way to manage Australia's radioactive waste into the future. Okay. Well, back to the struggle. And this sorry saga has been going on for a long time. In the early 2000s, the Howard government wanted a national waste dump in South Australia, and they abandoned that plan in 2004. And instead, they looked at the Northern Territory and settled on a site at Mukati. The traditional owners at Mukati, the Wellmampa people, won their campaign and stopped the dump going ahead. And it was an inspiring campaign, as you said it shouldn't be left to Indigenous people to defend their country. It's a struggle that all of us can take part in. Can you tell us a bit about the Mukati campaign? Because I know it brought in unions, even Labour politicians. It involved protests as well as legal action. Can you sketch how that victory was achieved and what are the lessons for the fight now in Kimber? Yeah, it was a very powerful, like you say, it was a very powerful campaign. It was over quite a few years. It was seven or eight years from the, the site being announced through to the Commonwealth pulling back and, and, and conceding that they weren't able to advance this. 
It was a broad-ranging campaign. It had legal challenges. It had political protests on the ground in Tennant Creek, which isn't, you know, like next door to the major population centres of Australia. So to have sustained, regular protests there that involved people from that region, from the wider territory, but also lots of people from interstate was a real tribute to, like, organisers and people engaged in the campaign. As you say, very strong trade union presence and a lot of key trade unions, like in particular, like Maritime Union and the ETU, Electrical Trades Union, and a whole range of others really kicked in and engaged with this issue strongly. The Northern Territory government, which has, because it's a territory, it's got reduced powers in relation to the Commonwealth and the states do, but the Territory government was opposed to this and concerned about this and a bit of a who's who of civil society groups, public health, trade union, environmental, indigenous support, really came on board and really tried to elevate this. Now, the interesting thing was that this all happened under a a federal Labor government. You know, the muckety fight happened under a federal Labor government. We had a very assertive resource minister in the form of Martin Ferguson, who was committed to this project, and it became a bit of an ego politic thing as well. Like we're going to, I'm going to be the hard man. We're going to drive this through, and so attempts to enter and open a dialogue about the constraints of this uh, plan, the concerns of traditional owners, they were always marginalised and highly politicised, and there was this sort of sense of disquiet in many others in federal labour, but they left it to the portfolio minister. So there was a lot of political agitation and pressure to say this is not a responsible or or acceptable way to do business. And I think some of the key lessons were the importance of actually going and meeting people, the importance of presence on country, the importance of a clear connection with the community, the primacy of the Aboriginal story and concern in both the narrative and in the campaign strategic shaping. So it wasn't like the Aboriginal concerns were, oh, that's a good media line. The Aboriginal concerns were of primary importance and they shaped how the strategy rolled out and was implemented. I think the the sense that was really clear, and I think a lot of your listeners would understand, was just that sense of... of, um, not not plinking, no trade-off. It was a bit of a zero-sum game, like there was either going to be a dump at Muckety or not, and there was no one on the side that thought that, that this was a suboptimal option and shouldn't go ahead. There was no one on our side that was saying, oh, look, if you did this, if you put different signage, if you had a community benefit package, if you had a job training package, maybe if you packaged up the waste this way, it'd be okay. It was like, no, this is fundamentally unacceptable. And so there was a sense of, there was a, a real sense of resolute, non-negotiable sort of approach that respected and prioritised Aboriginal concerns and positioning and that also aimed actively to build both understanding and respect amongst multiple civil society stakeholders and political actors. And a lot of it was hard sort of, work of like just briefing, you know, briefing journalists so that they didn't get like fundamental things wrong because the government, and they're doing it again at Kimber, they say this is essential for nuclear medicine. 
Now, everyone knows that if you're in a situation where you need nuclear medicine for diagnostic or therapeutic purposes, you know, you're in a hard spot in your life. No one wants to say that any person who's in that spot can't have access to a range of medicines that might improve their life or their chances. And so people go, oh, well, if this is a price we need to pay for nuclear medicine, then we have to pay it. And that's the end of the story. And it's actually just not true. There is no causal link. There is no link between Australians having continuing and indeed increasing access and secure access to nuclear medicine and having an imposed, poorly considered radioactive waste dump. It's, that, it's a media line that really works for the pro-facility line because when you have to tease it out about, you know, waste volumes and how nuclear medicine's made and how nuclear medicine waste is handled, etc., it's a very media-unfriendly line as opposed to nuclear medicine means radioactive waste. That means we've got a responsibility. This is the way we'll do it. So we had, like, for example, lots of briefing with journalists to explain why, lots of briefings with politicians and other civil society stakeholders to say joining in this and saying no to this facility at Muckety or indeed this one at Kimba, proposed at Kimba, is not denying or restricting access to nuclear medicine. It's not threatening people. It's, in fact, enhancing people's safety. So dispelling myths was a really important part of our work and just being dogged, persistent, respectful and ultimately, like um, Muckety showed, um, effective. And, you know, there were lots of components, but they were braided together into a powerful and effective campaign, David. And the intention is to do the same again, to use the Mukherjee model to prevent the Kimber waste dump? Yeah, broadly, yes, broadly it is. Like, obviously, circumstances and, and, you know, there's different cultural impacts, there's different players, there's different people and sensitivities. Like, it's not like a complete cookie-cutter sort of model. Hmm. Um, But those key principles of trying to reach out, trying to explain, dispel myths, offer alternatives not be putting forward an agenda that is able to be demonised or or put forward um, by our opponents as, you know, unreasonable, mad, irresponsible. Um, These people want to turn off the tap on technology. These people want to turn off the tap on sick kiddies with cancer. We want to come across as what we are, which is concerned, considered, effective, and with options that are better. We don't want to sterilise options. We want to grow them and adopt better ones. But we also are very considered in the sense of we are not going to sit back and allow basically a combination of coercive and controlled or highly curated processes deliver an outcome, first and foremost, for Aboriginal people, but then secondly, for the wider Australian community, that is a suboptimal outcome, a cheap and nasty half-baked political fix to a long-standing intergenerational environmental and human health threat. So it's a, it's a combination of that what we'll bring to the Kimber fight is basically reason and resistance. Fantastic. Now, while we're talking about nuclear threats... I thought we'd just talk a little bit about the plan for the government to buy eight nuclear 
powered submarines under the AUKUS arrangement with the US and UK. And I know you've spoken out against this. Uh, Greens leader Adam Banter said the boats will be floating Chernobyls in Australian cities, in the dockyards and harbours they use in Adelaide, Fremantle and the yet-to-be-chosen base on the East Coast. So leaving aside small things like $170 billion plus in costs, greater risk of war with China, you know, small things like that. What are the environmental consequences of nuclear-powered submarines? Yeah, well, nuclear reactors are risky pieces of technology. They're risky pieces of kit. We're seeing that right now, in uh, particularly in relation to Zaporizhia, Europe's largest nuclear complex in Ukraine, which has been the focus of real concern and real threat. So, you know, a nuclear reactor on a vessel that is designed to go underwater is, you know, a significant issue. It raises a range of, of issues and concerns. The other thing is that these are not civil facilities. Like a submarine is a military facility and military facilities are legitimate nuclear uh, military targets. So that means that you're putting a nuclear reactor inside uh, a piece of technology, a piece of machinery that is openly designated as both a deliverer and a potential receiver of military threat. So it's a high risk spot. The trouble is if there's an accident, a fire, an incident in the port or coastal waters, Australia's plan basically now is to chuck a line onto a stricken sub and tow it out to deep water, like effectively ocean dumping of radioactive waste. If there was a, a release through fire, accident, sabotage, misadventure in a port or control or, you know, like closed, low circulation waters, that's a significant environmental challenge and public health challenge to the not just the, the service personnel, but the local communities and emergency responders and everybody. And these things do, even in non-conflict times, you know, things go wrong. There's been half a dozen nuclear submarines that have uh, caught fire or been scuttled or been involved in significant accidents. So there's a real risk of the release of radiation and that's, you know, inside and as you mentioned, you mentioned a range of ports and they're all areas where a lot of people live, a lot of, you know, maritime workers work, etc, etc. So it's, it's introducing a level of threat that currently doesn't exist in Australia and we don't believe that it, there, there's a justification for that for all those reasons that we've put aside, the cost, the risk, the regional escalation in tension, etc, etc. So from an environmental perspective, it is elevating a nuclear risk with scant return. And that's before we talk about the militarism and the money. Well, the good news is there's now a national campaign against AUKUS and the submarines. And I'd encourage everybody to Google that and get involved in their local group. Now, looking more generally at nuclear issues, you've been campaigning for many years. The arguments against nuclear are really pretty simple and compelling, but there's always a Barnaby Joyce or three pushing the nuclear barrow. You know, Australia should have nuclear reactors. Nuclear is better for dealing with climate change. Why do people like that keep on pushing a proposal which is so fundamentally flawed, in your opinion? Yeah, great question. Um, and I think there's a there's a variety of, of reasons and factors. One is because 
nuclear isn't just a strictly logical question in some ways. It's become a totemic sort of issue. So for me on the right, it sort of symbolises the fact that we can control things. There are technical solutions to things. The left is is soft, sentimental, woolly-headed. We're logical. Nuclear power is logical. It's efficient. Let's get on with the job. So there's a there's a sort of culture dimension there. There is a a, a very real dimension, and the and the part that I have time and respect for in this debate are people who have and sometimes quite recent arrivals to the fact that climate crisis is real and people go god we can't do what we've done we need to do something else and they look around with sort of startled eyes and land on nuclear now i've got time for those people because they're 50 percent on the money their analysis that we can't keep having a fossil fuel economy or energy system is spot on their solution let's then jump from you know the coal fire into the atomic frying pan is dead wrong but there's a basis there for a discussion that's constructive there's another group of people and promoters in this david where there is not goodwill it is not motivated by a sense of we need to act urgently to preserve our planet and it's actually quite contrary and you you look at some of the big promoters of nuclear power in australia like you've got matt canavan for example queensland national senator former resource minister who when george floyd was murdered matt canavan's response was to drive around townsville in regional queensland with a hilux painted on the side was black coal matters he's pushing this it's mischievous it's political it's to seek a political wedge and it's also to delay and distract it's like the tobacco lobby it's to delay and distract and to roll out one person and claim that you've got an argument or a debate or you demand balance etc etc because there's people that don't want to see effective action on climate because they are happy enough because if you are talking about nuclear then you are not supercharging the move towards renewables so they know that renewables work they know renewables are popular they know that that is what people want and that is actually what we need but they've got political or capital investments and stakes in continuation of coal and fossil fuel so a great way to cause distraction on effective climate action is to chuck up the furphy of let's go nuclear the other thing that's really weird is that it's no one not the mineral council not the australian nuclear association no one who is promoting domestic nuclear power in australia is arguing that we should use the nuclear technology that exists in the world today and produces commercial electricity they're all saying that we should use small modular reactors, new generation, next generation, novel nuclear technology, none of which exists at scale, none of which is in commercial production. So their plan for our energy future, David, is based on there might be a solution further down the track from nuclear power if we chuck enough public subsidies at it and cross our fingers and wait long enough. And our concern is that we need urgent action now. We've got to drop carbon emissions and we don't want to delay we want to embrace what is proven proven popular and what is the fastest growing and cheapest energy sector in australia which is renewables so there's a variety of reasons from from sort of the sociological cultural through to the climate fear panic response through to 
mischievous politics based around delay, denial and the continuation of business as usual. You put those threads together, you chuck it into sort of the culture wars of commentators on Sky News, the Australian, the Andrew Bolts, and you have a platform for amplifying a plan that has no basis in any sort of real technical or economic reality, let alone social licence. Yep, and that, uh, of course, their proposals would generate more waste, which brings us back to where we were in the first place, which is the campaign, particularly in Kemba. Now, I know you're off shortly to the airport to get to South Australia. You're going to Port Augusta for the rally on Saturday. And please pass on our solidarity greetings uh, to everyone there, because I know it won't be it won't be the last rally. It will be one of many. In closing, can you tell us how to get involved in this campaign, especially for those people listening around the country for whom Port Augusta is, is not an easy commute, that they're, they're probably not going to make it to the next rally, but what can people do to uh, support this campaign? Yeah, absolutely. And that's right, you don't have to be in Port Augusta. It's a national issue, it's a national facility, and it is a decision of the national government. So one key focus is that we're saying to Labor, this is not your plan. You actually inherited this. It was a plan that was crafted up by Matt Canavan and Keith Pitt, neither of whom Labor accept uh, their positions on a whole range of climate or energy issues. So why would you then accept their position on managing an intergenerational waste? So consign this plan to the dustbin of history rather than turn Kimber and South Australia into a dustbin for radioactive waste. Keep extended interim storage at Anstow in Sydney and start an open, transparent, robust analysis of future management options. So it's not really, you know, an amazing revolutionary, uh, you know, speech from the stump. It's a pretty simple thing. Stop doing something stupid. Have a prudent alternative, which buys some time for a considered and measured approach into the future. That's what we're asking of Labor. First thing to do is to stop the Kimber plan, like you said. So actually... Bringing this to the attention of Labor politicians, and I'm sure that many people listening to this be, oh, don't, you know, I can't be bothered talking with politicians, and fair enough, but if you can be bothered, this one actually makes a real point and a real difference. If you can be bothered talking to politicians, talk to two sorts of politicians. Talk to Labor not to do the radioactive waste thing and to, in fact, revisit and do it differently, and talk to the Teals not to buy into any of the nuclear power chatter. And they're not. But, you know, people need to be bolstered because the pro-nuclear side's knocking on the door all the time. In relation to other actions, Bungla have all sorts of GoFundMes and appeals for their legal case and that stuff. So if you're in a position to uh, support financially, that's always welcome. Friends of the Earth and ACF and others have information on our websites about this and ways to get involved but it is a couple of key things would be to have a read make a little bit of space i know everyone's busy but make a little bit of space in your day to have a read about this read and see some of the bungler resources and then engage and share this because basically if these things happen our campaign as you well know and your listeners know it works when there is a general sense in the community that, yeah, what they're saying makes more sense than what the other side's saying. So 
if we can inform ourselves a bit, not become nuclear waste experts, but inform ourselves a bit into why this is a dodgy plan and that there is a prudent alternative and feel confident in the pub, in the dinner table, at the electoral office to say there's a better way to do this. Because fundamentally, David, this one is, um, you know, we're in 2022, we're heading not too far away into 2023, and we are sitting in this country and we are looking at setting up the first ever dedicated national radioactive waste facility, and we're doing it in direct defiance of Aboriginal people. They haven't just said, oh, we're not convinced, they've said we oppose, and they haven't had a chance to say we oppose. For that ground alone, and this is what Bungler say, Bungler say to Labor, you can't be talking about statement from the heart and the voice, both of which are good, if you are not listening to our voice and if you're breaking our hearts. So don't do it. You That's know, it. walk the talk. Absolutely. And obviously, I'd encourage listeners, raise this in your unions or your student unions and other organisations you're in, because if we can start to get discussions in those sorts of bodies, we can get resolutions of solidarity. We're laying the basis maybe for a future National Day of Action where we'll be marching in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane or whatever around the country in solidarity with the Bangla. I know that that's something that's down the track, but that is obviously something to aim for as, as a future action. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. Re- letters, resolution, talk, motions, letters to politicians, all of that stuff raises the level. What, what we don't want is decisions to be made in isolation in Canberra, removed from the people most heavily impacted by those decisions. We want Canberra to have to look people in the eye, not just the bungler, but all Australians on the transport corridor and everywhere, and explain why this is a good decision, because it's not, and we need to do better. Okay. Thanks for your time, Dave. Safe travels. Solidarity with the rally. Absolute pleasure. I will pass on that message from you and your comrades and I uh, and I welcome the opportunity to talk today and thanks to you for your work and to everybody from that left perspective that's building a, a fairer, more just, more inclusive Australia. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.